I first read a book, his book, Sex in the Eye World, which we have here out um, in the lobby, which we'll talk about later, um, in regards to preparing for the series of Romans. And so uh, most of the churches that I named, we're, ta- we're teaching through Romans right now. Redemption is, Life Connection Church is teaching through Romans. And we knew we'd come up with Romans 1. And in Romans 1, uh, it mentions homosexuality. And we wanted to be able to, I wanted to be able to have an understanding of not only what the Bible say, but a framework on relationship and love. And I was talking to Justin Anderson, who used to be here with us from Redemption, and he mentioned that there was a guy flying in from the East Coast to San Francisco to meet with some pastors on this particular topic. And I thought, if someone's coming from New York, um, East Coast to meet with pastors in San Francisco, which the issue is uh, a much larger uh, issue there in San Francisco than it is in, in Phoenix, I wanted to hear from this guy. Read the book, loved it, and then we got an opportunity to go to a conference, Sean Mortensen and myself, and listened to Dale, went to his Q&A, kind of haunted him a little bit, became, we're best friends now, I think, and, uh, and it's been great. So earlier we got an opportunity to uh, sit in a room full of pastors in the valley and hear him teach, and it was deeply, deeply uh, influential and inspiring and uh, just a very helpful conversation. And so I don't want to oversell. I know sometimes I can speak in hyperbole, but this is probably going to be the best message you guys have ever heard from the stage. Um, and so without further ado, would you guys, um, well... We're gonna wait because uh, and so anyway, so Dale also, uh, Dale also is uh, well, he wrote a book called Sex in the Eye World, and he's ready to speak. So you guys join me in welcoming Dale as he comes to the stage. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, you can do whatever you want to do. Oh, thanks. Actually, I'm nervous, so I gotta buckle my belt up. Okay. Um. I'm delighted to be here, and I'm, I'm honored by the invitation, and um, we're going to speak tonight about sexuality, and I want to um, hopefully begin a discussion and not end a discussion about it. Um, I will have some time for question and answer afterwards. I'm a college professor. I, I teach politics in, um, at St. Anselm College in Manchester, New Hampshire, and college professors are known for taking the things that are most interesting talking about the things that aren't and then not ever addressing the things that people are most interested in. So hopefully, at least during the Q&A, we can, we can, we can get there. Um, you may wonder why it is that there's a pastor who's a politics professor in your presence. Um, I'm, about, I'm the only ordained politics professor in the United States, and I, uh, I grew up in the church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I despaired of the church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I decided that my options in life were either to be unhappy as a layperson or miserable as a pastor. So I opted for unhappiness and uh, decided to study politics. Got my doctorate, and then in my 40s, uh, I felt like I should get involved in the church again. And, uh, and so I, I, it's a long story and a long journey that's brought me back to pastoral ministry. My job at St. Anselm College is kind of a dream job for political scientists. Uh, For those of you that pay attention to American electoral politics, you know that New Hampshire primary is the first primary. And so the presidential candidates all come to our campus. We host several nationally televised debates every cycle, and it's my opportunity to host the candidates and their handlers and all the rest. And I love it. And part of the reason I love it is because I've gotten to know the national media over the years, and they ask me for my opinion, and if my ego is such, I like to give my opinion. 
and it means my mother runs around Minnesota in January to try to find Rolling Stone magazine, and the image just is striking to me. So I love that. And then one day, um, our neighbor to the south, Massachusetts, um, the Supreme Court decided that same-sex marriage was legal. The press came to me and asked me, what did I think about that? And I said, I'm not from Massachusetts, so I'm not going to talk about it. And then uh, shortly thereafter, uh, Eugene Robinson was uh, ordained the Bishop of New Hampshire in the Episcopal Church. Reverend Robinson was the first openly gay Episcopal Bishop in the world. It set off the firestorm that will ultimately divide the Anglican Communion. And the press came back to me because they know I'm a religious guy. And they asked me, what did I think? And I said, well, I'm not Episcopalian. I don't want to talk about it. So if you're asking yourself who in their right mind would write a book on sexuality and who in their right mind would write a book about um, sexuality in America and address issues such as homosexuality, etc., who would do this kind of thing? Not me. But shortly thereafter, New Hampshire legalized same-sex marriage, and I found myself in, in kind of a crisis of faith. As a politics professor, I can say no comment. But as a pastor, if I'm not willing to address the issues of the day, then I might as well just turn in my ordination. And so I consented to be on a New Hampshire public radio talk show one day, a debate with Bishop Robinson. And the debate opens up, and the moderator asks me, what do I think the scripture has to say about same-sex marriage? And for about two minutes, I said that I didn't think the Bible supported same-sex marriage. And Bishop Robinson chimes in and he says, I couldn't agree with Reverend King more. The Bible doesn't support same-sex marriage. I'm like, wow. But neither does the Bible oppose it. In fact, the Bible's not a book about history. It's not a book about science. It's not a book about this and that. It's a book about love and grace. So he moved the discussion off the scripture into the world of love and grace. And for the next 90 minutes, people called in asking me why I was such a bigot. And so I said, I don't want to do that again. (laughs) But what I realized was I didn't have the language to speak to the world in which I live, what I believe to be true, which is the Christian teaching about sexuality is good news. And what I decided was that I needed to go off and think about this. And I decided to write the book. And I said I wasn't going to publish it and I wasn't going to talk about it until I could look everybody in the eye and say, I think the scriptural teaching about sexuality is gospel. And so five years later, I published the book and had the opportunity to go speak about it all over the world and hardly ever in the United States. So this is only the third church in five years that has invited me to speak. So you may figure out why that is shortly. <laughs> um, but my sense is, is that the American church is, doesn't want to talk about it. And I think part of it is, is that we do share an idea in common, and that is, is that the scripture isn't good news. That when it comes to issues of sexuality, what the scripture has to say is something we, we ought to either be ashamed of or just not talk about, uh, conveniently ignore because what good could come of it? 
But I do believe that the scriptural teaching is good news, and I also know that there's a whole bunch of people that don't regard it that way, including Christians. And so I want to share with you tonight a little bit of my journey for how I've come to this conclusion and then open it up for, for question and answer. I think everybody in the room has, probably has a pretty good idea what the scripture has to say about sexuality. And so it's not the case that, that I need to come in with some brand new exegesis of either Hebrew and Greek to try to let you know that what the scripture says in my, in my estimation is, is that sexuality should be confined to a marriage between a man and a woman. The more fundamental question that we face in this world in which we live in is why? Is it true? Because we live in a world now that says that in order for me to get the ultimate in happiness, I need to be able to be in a sexual relationship with whoever I'm most attracted to. And if I'm not able to be in a sexual relationship with the person I'm most attracted to, I'm robbed I'm robbed, we are robbed of something we need to be fully human. And we live in a world now in which we don't tend to look at each other as male and female, we tend to look at each other as persons. And that so while 20, 30, 40, 50, 2,000 years ago, we tended to think in very strongly in terms of male, female, we now think pretty increasingly strongly in terms of persons. And if two people are romantically inclined toward each other, then why shouldn't they be able to be in a romantic sexual relationship? Why shouldn't they be able to be in a monogamous marriage? Why not? What's wrong with that? And we live in a world that makes the case stridently, but it also makes the case gently, makes the case from our heart, makes the case from our head. And I guess the question is, is it true? So what I want to do for a few minutes is not talk about the Bible. I want, to talk, I want to talk a little bit about a Greek philosopher named Aristotle. And he has some things to say about humanity, human beings in relationship. And I want to share that with you and then um, reconnect it back to the Bible. Aristotle argues that human beings are fundamentally relational. In America, we often talk about the rugged individual. Aristotle says we are made for relationship. There's no such thing as a self-made man, no, much, so much, no, no such thing as a self-made woman. We can't live without each other. We are made for relationship. More than that, human beings are made to love and to be loved. What we desire more than anything else is to be loved, to be known. And as much as we want to be loved and be known, we take great joy in knowing others and in loving others. And that that's fundamentally who we are. We're not fundamentally consumers of, of money and things. We're fundamentally about relationship. And he says there's several relationships that are indispensable to the best possible life. First one is family. Now, when I go around and I say to people, family is a fundamental good, 
I can, I can, audience members will just turn their heads. Because there's so, for so many of us, family is painful. So many of us come from broken families. So many of us come from situations where we, it's, we feel like we've escaped. And Aristotle says that family matters. That you learn things, that you experience things. Life in family matters to us. And it matters in such a way that nothing else can take its place. It's not that life isn't worth living if we don't have a good family, but the reality is family matters. In a certain sense, I've been in therapy since 2000, and I think therapists are going to make a lot of money off of a whole bunch of us because whether we like it or not, family matters. Aristotle said, not only does family matter, but neighborhood matters. Those people that live geographically around you, if you can trust your kids with them, if you can enjoy life with them, your life is much better off if you live in a good neighborhood. And if you live in a bad neighborhood, it fundamentally affects your quality of life. And my guess is, is that many of you have deliberately chosen where you want to live, deliberately chosen the neighborhood, because you inherently know that it matters. Even if you don't know your neighbors, you know that it matters. The third thing he says is that the city matters. Would you rather live in Phoenix or Beirut? Would you rather live in Tempe or in Tebe? So you might say, well, this is all very not interesting. Family, neighborhood, city. He says these are relationships of obligation. You don't choose your family, you don't choose your neighborhood, you don't choose your city, you're kind of born there, and you kind of have to make the best of it. My kids will say to me sometimes, I didn't ask to be born. And I'll say, well, I prayed for children, but I didn't get the children I prayed for. <laughs> you know, it's, sometimes you just got to make the best of it. And Renown said, community is the place with the people you like the least. <laughs> it's, it's hard. And so relationships of obligation matter, and we need to invest ourselves in family, neighborhood, city. But there's some, for Aristotle, one of the most important relationships of all is friendship. And the reason friendship is so significant is because there's no contract. A friendship is one where you choose to love the other person for who they are, and they choose to love you for who they are. There's no obligation. It's just mutual. And what Aristotle says is that if you go through your life and you have two or three great friends, then you have received one of the greatest gifts a human being can receive. Because what a friendship can do for us is Family, neighborhood, city, people have to relate to us. But when people have to relate to us, there's the insecurity that goes along. If anybody really knew me, would they love me? If anybody didn't have to love me, would they? And what a friendship does is it helps you understand that you can be loved for who you are. No contract, nothing. Now, we can kind of romanticize family and friendship and those things. 
But as we sit here today, there's one thing that probably all of us are really in touch with, and that is relationships are painful. We hurt each other. We get hurt and we hurt. And you can't live in this world very long without being deeply hurt about relationships. I can think of all sorts of times in where I was in various places in the United States in the late 70s in which one young woman after another would look at me and say, let's just be friends, like the worst thing you could say to somebody. In other words, go away. I don't want to see you. Relationships painful. And all of us not only experience some hurt, we experience deep hurt. And when we get deeply hurt in relationship, the greatest temptation for us, the the thought that comes to each one of us is, forget this, I am not going to put myself out there again so I can be hurt like this. And all of us are trying to decide, do I just close myself off, do I just pull back, and do I just try to live independently? And you know people that have pulled back. And you may even been one yourself. And when we are tempted to pull back, what we're confronted with is, it's not that expensive to live in relationship. But in order to live an independent life, you require independent means. If you're going to live so you're not dependent on each other, you've got to be independently wealthy. And so what I think we observe in this world, what Aristotle thinks we observe in this world, is that there's all sorts of people in this world who have decided relationship is not my future and I need to try to live independently. And you see all sorts of people investing themselves in trying to make money and trying to become independently wealthy. Most of us, me included, could work our entire lives and never get independently wealthy. Some people are good at debt enhancement, and I'm one of them. And what kind of life is it, Aristotle asks, if you spend the rest of your life trying to become independently wealthy and you never make it? What kind of life is that? But let's say you're one of the few They can become independently wealthy. You're Donald Trump, whatever it is. And you're able to build your castle and you have a moat around it. I don't know what you have in Phoenix for moats, but maybe you have moats. I'm thinking of the Batcave. And you're driving home at night in whatever car you like and you drive into the thing and you walk up the stairs. You close the drawbridge. You go into the kitchen. You make yourself dinner and you sit down by yourself at the table. And as you're sitting down by yourself at the table, what's your first thought? Aristotle says, everybody in this room has the same thought. I'm lonely. That as we're sitting here right now, what all of us can recognize is the path of financial independence, the path of becoming independently wealthy is a dead end. It will not work. That at the end of the path, what we find is loneliness. And that the only way forward, 
The only way forward is to give ourselves to relationship. That as painful as it is, we need to give ourselves to relationship. Now you may say, well, have I just shown that what we need to be happy is to have neighborhood, family, city, and friendship. And Aristotle says, those alone aren't enough. Why? There's still something missing. Imagine your ideal house. Live in your ideal house for three years. Is it still your ideal house? Imagine your ideal car. Drive it for three years. Is it still your ideal car? Imagine your ideal iPhone 5. Have it for six months. Aristotle says there's nothing you can imagine that if you get it, you won't become bored with it. Things won't do it. It goes farther. Imagine your ideal spouse. Live with them for seven years. Are they still your ideal spouse? There's no person that you can imagine that if you don't get them, you won't become bored with them. Aristotle says there's only one thing that can fulfill us. And that is to be involved in a relationship with a being that you could spend eternity getting to know and never fully know. This is the highbrow moment. If you get this, I'll give you a free college diploma. (laughs) Redemption, this will be the best bargain you ever had. There's... The only thing that can satisfy us is for us to be in relationship with a being that we could have spent eternity seeking to know and never fully know. Now, he called that philosophy. He didn't call it religion because the Greek gods were crazy. But what he said was, the only thing that can fascinate us is the divine. And if we are engaged in relating to, getting to know the divine, then we can find a word, we can find something that Americans hardly, a word Americans hardly ever use. If we can be in relationship with the divine, we can find contentment in what we have and who we are with. Aristotle may have said it was philosophy, but it's not surprising St. Thomas Aquinas comes along in the Middle Ages and said, it's God. Blaise Pascal comes along and says, there's a God-shaped hole in our heart that only God can fill. And that if we're in relationship with the divine, then we will not ask things to be more than things. And we won't ask people to be more than people. How many people do you know? Perhaps ourselves. And we are so frantic to try to find fulfillment that we are trying to find fulfillment in things. And how many of our garages, our attics, whatever, our cars, our trunks are filled with things that we have worked through and excreted? 
Because in a certain sense, that's consumption. You consume it and you excrete it. And that's not just true for things, but how many of us have done this to people? How many, people, how many times have we tried to find somebody that will fulfill us so that we wouldn't be so bold as to put it in those terms, and then we engage with them and we consume them and we excrete them? And in this world of ours, there are relational carcasses all over the place. But what Aristotle says is that if we can find contentment in our relationship with the divine, then we can find contentment with people and with things. Now, I, the rumor has it that one of the things that drew you here tonight was to talk about sexuality. And we haven't. But let's do it. Aristotle's sexual ethic is sex should be confined to a marriage between a man and a woman. Why would he do that? If you know much about Greek culture, you know that the highest form of relationship was male-male. There's a fair amount of probably a lot of homosexuality, the Platonic dialogues, etc. So why would Aristotle say that? They don't have a conception of sin. Why would he say it? Aristotle argued that sexuality was an appetite, kind of like food. Appetites are good. They're good. They help us stay alive. They're good. They have a purpose. They have a place. Food is good. But an appetite by its very nature is insatiable. The more that you feed it, the more that it needs to be fed in order to deliver the same amount of fulfillment. Now, we certainly can know that from food, hence the phrase comfort food. But we also know that that's true about sexuality. Anybody who knows anything about pornography, you'll know that pornography is very stimulating to the certain cortex in the brain and that it, it releases a lot of things that give you a chemical reaction that's pretty pleasing. But in order to get the same kind of chemical reaction, it has to be more and more, and you have to kind of go deeper and darker. And the irony of the whole thing is that the logical conclusion of feeding the sexual appetite is that it, elim that it eliminates your desire for sexuality. It's the plight of the porn industry. Those that are deeply into it lose interest in sex. And so Aristotle's point is not that sexuality is bad. His point is it's an appetite. And his fundamental argument is don't sexualize a friendship. Why? A friendship by its nature is to love and to be loved, to love someone else for who they are and be loved for who you are. And if you introduce sexuality into a friendship, you're introducing an element of slavery into the relationship. And that you begin to, begin to think about what can you get off the other. And the other begins to think about what they can get off of you. And that, to use a modern phrase, it makes it complicated. How's the relationship? It's complicated. And everybody knows what you mean, sort of. And Aristotle's argument is, it's not that it's a sin. He doesn't have a conception of sin. He says it's not virtuous because it doesn't lead to the best life. Don't sexualize a friendship. He, what he argues is it should be confined to a marriage, but because the purpose of it is procreative. And that in any other relationship, it doesn't enhance the relationship. So in his eyes, sex should be confined to a marriage between a man and a woman.
Now, why do I go into this uh, diversion in Aristotle? Because it sounds an awful lot like Scripture. We're made to love the Lord our God with all our mind, heart, and soul, and love our neighbor as ourself. We are made to love and to be loved. We are made to be part of relationship. We're made to be part of family in the Old Testament, and clan, and tribe, and nation. In the New Testament, we're made to be part of the church. We are made to be in relationship. And I would argue that in the Old and the New Testament alike, the scripture is pretty consistent to say sexuality should be confined to a marriage between a man and a woman. Why? Why should it be confined to a marriage between a man and a woman? I think what the scripture is saying is you don't, we don't need to be in a sexual relationship to be fulfilled. More than that, we don't need to be married to be fulfilled. I think what the scripture is saying is that in the Old Testament, we're all part of family. Not everybody's married, but we're all part of family. We're all part of clan. We're all part of tribe. And that to live the best possible life, we need to have healthy relational boundaries. Leviticus 18 is a passage that is kind of anathema. We don't want to talk about that one. And if you haven't read it, you should just go and read it soon. Tonight. And if you're wondering, it's the passage that says don't have sex with your aunts or your uncles or your parents or this or your grandparents, etc., etc., etc. And it puts all sorts of these boundaries out there. Don't have sex with animals. Don't have sex with, don't have sex with people of the same sex, etc. And that's kind of seen, Leviticus 18 is kind of seen to be the killjoy phrase. It's kind of the killjoy chapter. It's kind of the chapter we don't want to talk about because it kind of says God wants to squash. And then a friend of mine who teaches law at the University of Bristol in England, and he comes up to me like the British like to do, and they say, he says, Dale, what commandment of the Ten Commandments is Leviticus 18 most like? So having a PhD, I say with confidence, do not commit adultery. He's with a big smile on his face, says, wrong. Which is another English way to say, I know more than you. And he says, actually, adultery is not mentioned in that passage. I hadn't thought about that. He says, it's actually honor your father and mother. The reason you don't want to have sexual relations with all these different configurations in the family is because it undermines family. It undermines relationship. More than that, it undermines it pretty permanently. What the scripture says was, was that the Canaanites were guilty of all those things and the land vomited them out. You might say that's pretty brutal. But then again, you may ask yourself, as you look at the lives of people you know, as you look at your own life, as you look at lives of others, what was the fruit of the sexual, the sexual promiscuity and activity that went on? Most importantly, did it bring happiness? In the New Testament, Jesus says there's no marriage in heaven. 
Jesus says, only but for the hardness of our hearts do I permit divorce. Paul comes along and says, I wish you were all single like I, but if you're going to burn with lust, it's better that you're married. But if you're single and you find yourself single, stay single, stay as you are. If you're divorced, stay as you are. If it Stay as you are. Why would he say that? Why does it seem that the Old Testament and the New Testament is designed to frustrate us? Why does it seem that the Old Testament and the New Testament is designed to... Not for our happiness in mind. And it's my belief that when you look at the Old and New Testament, you look at the New Testament... We live in a world in which the assumption is if you are living the best and the deepest and most possible of all lives, then you are married. And if you're single, we tell you that you have a special gift, but you're not. You're strange. And there's married, and then there's single, and then there's kind of the church down here. And I think When Paul is writing and Jesus is speaking, their assumption is simply the best and deepest and most fulfilling of all relationships is to be engaged in relationship with God and in relationship with others in the church. And that the reality is, is that when we come to Christ, it's not just the case that we begin to develop a connection with this God that we cannot yet see. But that when we get up from our knees after giving ourselves to Christ, we wake up and all of a sudden we see people around us. And God says to us, these are your brothers and sisters. And that the reality is, is that the love that I am giving you through the Holy Spirit, the love that is being poured out from heaven upon you in the church and in Jesus, the reality is, is that that is the most fulfilling relationship that you can possibly have. And the good news is, there's nothing that can disconnect you from God and the church. And so when they say... It's not necessary that you're married. They actually mean it's not necessary that you're married. And that it's actually relationship with God in the church and marriage is a subset. Lots of people get married. It's true. But not everybody. And what the scripture is saying is, is that if you're in relationship with God and you're in the church... The, the fact of the matter is, is that you are connected with the most fulfilling thing possible. And that when you begin to tap into that relationship with God in the church, what you're going to discover is that if your spouse dies, if you never marry, if you're in a bad marriage, whatever, the reality is, is that you are never robbed of what you need to be fulfilled. That if you never have a sexual relationship, you're never in a relationship where it's sanctioned. It's not the case. The reality is that you're never robbed of what you need to be fulfilled. And part of the challenge that we face in the world in which we live is not just that the world has idolized sexuality, and it's not just the world in a certain sense that has idolized marriage. The Christian church has as well. And we are told almost in almost all, it's very difficult to go to churches in which you get a sense that we're all in it together. You have this really strange word to describe people. Single. It's like the most unrelational, antithetical, scriptural word I can think of. It's like there's married people and then there's singular people who are by definition lonely. Right? What it should be. We are brothers 
and sisters. And we're given sexual boundaries in order to help us to live the best and the deepest and most fulfilling of all relationships. We often get the impression that what it means to be a Christian is to have no passion, no passionate love. The Greeks had this word called erotic. And that says in the Bible, you should not speak of eros. No, it doesn't say that. But when we think of the erotic today, we immediately think of sexuality or pornography, etc. That's not what the Greeks meant. What the word eros means is it a passionate love for another. And that none of us choose what we're passionate about. We don't choose who we're passionate about. God has made us, and we're complicated. And we have passionate love. And what the scripture is saying is, we need to find appropriate ways to love. We need to find appropriate ways to love one another. And we need, we need to be, the church needs to be the specialists in love. We need to be the best lovers on earth. Everybody who walks in our doors needs to feel, not just be loved and feel the love, just like we need to feel the love. And my sense is, is that one of the reasons why the church doesn't seem to have much currency in the world is that we don't love very well. If I go to a, a secular university and give a talk like this, and I if you give me 45 minutes, then I can, this, I can pretty much get people to do it. Yeah, the sex isn't really that good. And yeah, I don't really have much hope for marriage or relationship. And you could just feel people leaning forward. So, you know, okay. He's demythologized two of the biggies. So what's the answer? And if I was to say the answer is the church, I would get, figuratively, people giving me, the entire audience giving me the finger. And they'd say, you've got to be kidding. You take away my shallow sex. You take away my, I really don't have much hope for relationship, and you give me the church, forget it. Not possible, not true. So as I've come to ponder this, I've said that my secret mission statement for my church is that we need to be better than sex. What it means to be the church is to be better than sex. And it shouldn't be that high a problem. It shouldn't be that big a deal. In other words, the reason why the world in which we live, we live in, the reason why we are so attracted to things that will not fulfill us and to things that will not enhance our relationship is because we, we have such this deep desire to be loved and we're so hungry. We're so thirsty. We want to be loved and we don't feel it. And that what it means to be part of the church and what it means to be part of the church of Christ is to be in a place where love dwells, in which others are loved well. And the reason why we don't have to sexualize our relationships is because it won't enhance them. And my sense is, is that if, people, if we loved well in the church, what would happen is that people would walk in and say, 
Whoa, I can consider changing my behavior because there's something better. If what the church offers is legalism, that's not going to make anybody want to change. But if people tap into love, that's going to make them want to change. So what's wrong with same-sex relations? What's the problem with same-sex sexual relations? What's the problem with same-sex marriage? I think reason tells us and the scripture tells us that sexualizing a friendship won't enhance it. I believe that to be true. All of us, all of us know people who are, have same-sex attraction. And if we know the person well, we know that they didn't choose it. We don't choose our attractions. Most of us are attracted to the same gender our whole lives. A few of us can move back and forth. So, if somebody has same-sex attraction, are we saying you can't get married to somebody of the same sex? Yeah. Are we saying that you can't be in a sexual relationship? Yeah. And what we're saying is there's something better. Now, all of us have been in conversations in which we're told that it's not fair. I'm 55 years old. I've been married for 33 years to Rachel. I'm married. Can I say anything about this? Yeah. Is what we're saying that if you have same-sex relations, attractions, that you can't act on them, you're not supposed to act on them the rest of your life? Yeah. Is that hard? Harder than most of us know. It's really easy for us to get the impression that People with same-sex attraction have this really hard thing to bear and the rest of us don't. I think what's fair to say that all of us, it's hard to be any of us. I think the scripture says that sexuality is second to finance, money, greed to the most tempting of sins. I don't struggle with same-sex attraction, but I'm not naturally monogamous. I find myself attracted to lots of women. And I struggle with finance. And I went bankrupt. I had a bankruptcy last year. And I had to wake up to the fact that it's hard to be... It's, I, 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 don't know, I don't want to make light of it. I'm just saying... You have no idea what it's like to be me, and I don't know what it's like to be you. But what does the scripture tell us? None of us gets to do what we want. All of us have to deny ourselves to follow Christ. And it's hard. It's really hard.
And it's the only way. And that what it means to be a Christian is to admit that none of us get, nobody gets to do what they want on this earth. That it's hard for us. What makes it bearable? It's, it's, not, almost, it's not possible to bear by ourselves. What makes it bearable is to be loved. What makes it bearable is to be in a community that has grace, that has forgiveness, that calls us to purity. To be in a community that calls us, tells us to love each other well with good boundaries. To be in a community that tells us that it's not the sexuality that will make us fulfilled. It's not the marriage that will make us fulfilled. It's connecting with God and with each other. It's being loved as brothers and sisters unconditionally. No matter our sins. No matter our problems. No matter whether we have same-sex attraction or not. What makes life worth living is to be in that community where we can be loved despite ourselves, despite our sin. And that if we're in that community... We can bear these things because we don't have to bear it alone because there's brothers and sisters that can walk with us, journey with us every step of the way. That it's not the case that there's some of us that have it together and there's others of us that don't. We're all in varying degrees of not having it together. We're all in various degrees of denial. That if anybody in this room tonight is thinking that I actually can't get in touch with my sin, then you are in big trouble. And if you're sitting here tonight saying, I've got this thing about gay people, you would not be, would, that would not be the, and I would have given you the wrong impression. For the most part, every person I know with same-sex attraction struggles intensely with their sexuality. I wish that people with opposite sex attractions would struggle with their sexuality. I had somebody who aspires to be a youth leader in my church a couple of weeks ago, he said, let's have dinner together. I said, that's great. I've been at the church for a year. I've written this book. You know, it's fantastic. Your pastor thinks I'm the greatest thing ever. I don't want to talk about sex every week. So he calls me up a few days ahead of time. You mind if I bring my girlfriend? No, let's do that. So we go to dinner, and it's clear that neither one of them has a clue that they're not supposed to be telling me that they're living together. It's not that they're hiding it poorly. She's never been to church in her life. He's been to church for a decade. Wow. I'm sitting there, wow. And I'm saying to myself, no. I wish everybody was struggling with their sexuality. And I wish we lived in a world that kind of had a clue. But... We get to go forward. A lot of times we get the impression that people like me are from the past. That I'm the old guy. And I think the way they do because I'm old. And that if I was 30 years younger, I'd think differently. And a lot of times you meet Christians and you get the impression they want to go back to the 50s. And I'm saying, I don't want to go back to the 50s. What it means to be a Christian is not to go backwards, it's to go forward. Jesus is not just that God of the, the creator that stands at the beginning of time. He's the redeemer that stands at the end of time. And he calls us forward. A lot of times people think that Christians are the old fogies from the past. And I would argue that we are the future. 
What it means to be Christian in the world in which you live is to be countercultural, and it's always meant that. And in this world in which we live right now, what I'm saying is, is that the world is on a gigantic march to a dead end. The sexuality will not be fulfilling. The relationships will not be the fulfilling. That if you're going to try to find your fulfillment in sexuality and on another person, it's going to be a dead end. It's not going to work. And what it is that the Christian church needs to do is that we need to stand up, not judgmentally, but stand up with confidence and say there is a better way. Come, be loved. Come, be loved. Come, be loved. It's the future. And even if people don't listen to us now, it doesn't matter because the reality is there's going to be a time in the next decade, two decades, whatever, in which people are going to figure out this is a dead end. And you want to know something? The high school students are already figuring it out. There's a professor at my school that's doing a study of the sexual behavior of high school students, and the research is showing high school students are having less sex now than five years ago. And you say, why? Is it the education? Is it the church? The answer is they're bored with it. The answer is is that 50% of 14-year-olds have been exposed to hardcore pornography on the Internet, that sex education is the Internet. It's not school, it's not church, it's not parents, it's the Internet. And that there's been so much experimentation that people have come to the end of their high school years and said, no, this isn't doing it for me. There must be something else. There is something else. And there always has been. And what it means to be the church is to, is to be gracious, unashamed, and say there is a better way. And you're always welcome, genuinely, deeply. And no matter what brokenness you come with, you're welcome. No matter what brokenness you come with, there's healing. That you can be loved. And that there's, the reason we love you is to say that there are boundaries. And that the reason that we love you when we say that there, is a, there are way, ways of life that are going to bring life and there's gonna, ways of life that are going to take it. And brothers and sisters, I mean it with all my heart when I say I pray that you are a congregation that loves well. I pray that you're a congregation that draws people in. And that when they come in and they sense the presence of God, they say, I want it. I want this. And what I thought I wanted, I don't. Because hasn't that been the case for us? So I'm going to pause here. Your pastor is going to come up and offer more words of praise. And then we'll have some question and answer. As your yeah, there he is. Um, one of the things, as I come on to say, one of the things that we're going to be able to do is, as we continue, is have some texting questions. Uh, one, of the, one of the things we found is that people will be honest um, Good. during um, texting questions. If not, they won't be. Um, we can get questions. So here's what you have here is you'll text all of life um, and followed by your question to that number there. And I want you guys to begin to start uh, texting these questions. And what I want to do is, is ask you a, a few questions. And we'll leave that on the screen for you guys so you can guys get the questions in. Is um, Just as a pastor wrestling with um, this issue, one, I will give you some more praise. I should make fun of you first, but I won't. 
which is usually my love language to people. You've noticed that so far. I have. I, have. I feel the love language, yeah. <laughs> but they're, they're, as a pastor, as a, as a person, just like everybody here, um, you said we've all had encounter with people who have same-sex attraction, or we ourselves do, and um, there's so much surrounding that. Um, the, the first question I have is, um, you painted a beautiful picture of what the church is and who she is and, and what God has um, placed us here for. And, and um, we would all agree that we, we don't love well. And we don't want to just sit there and go, we don't love well. We should love well. Um, and if we had this loving community where we can love people in non-sexual ways. I mean, the people that I have in mind are, are the people here who do struggle with their same-sex attraction. And barring God doing something and changing their um, attraction... They're going to be seen. They want to honor God. They want to follow Jesus. They want to lay down their life, deny themselves, and, and they're going to be um, without spouse, which I thought you painted a big picture is that's not the highest mm-hmm. degree of love, which that's very convicting. And, and I, I think that's why we brought you in to talk about that as well. But the question is, how do we get there as a community? And so not just me as a pastor, what do I do? What do we do as men and women in a congregation or multiple congregations and churches here that we provide a context for these men and women? Um, mm-hmm. That really struggle with their, with their, with their sexual um, attractions to be honest with more than just their pastor, but even their friends that they could be loved well. Yeah. Every culture has uh, their own definition of lepers. In my book, at the foreword, I, I pay tribute to the men of the New Hampshire State Prison in Concord. Um, the church I, that pastored 12 years ago, the, the chair of the church was an 85-year-old woman who was the head of prison fellowship in New Hampshire. And I'm the kind of person, if an 85-year-old woman says, you have to do something, yes, ma'am. She told me I had to go up to the state prison and preach once a month. And what the prisoners, I learned from the prisoners, and I was initially scared of them, was the church at the state prison is the neatest place I go every month. And part of the reason for that is everybody knows everybody else's stuff. There's supposed to be two people to a cell, and there's four. There's no secrets. Everybody knows their stuff. And so when they go in, there's a certain level of vulnerability and transparency. And what I've learned is vulnerability and transparency on the part of all of us is one of the things that helps us go forward. And, you know, I mean, people with same-sex attraction have been lepers for a lot of cultures, including ours, for a long time. And we can come and say to each other, we believe in grace and we believe in love and we believe in God, but, you know, don't have gay people with us because they're going to infect us. Don't have them around your kids because they're going to infect them. And what I think we need to realize is all of us are in need of grace and all of us are in need of help. And that when somebody comes and says, I'm struggling with this, we need to give them a hug. And we need to begin to walk with them. And we need to be able to hold their confidence. And let it be said, I would say that 
somebody with same-sex attraction wouldn't go out into the world and say they love people with same-sex attraction, but they love one another. And that's what I, that's what I want to strive for. And the reality is you can't put anybody in a box. I've had people leave my congregation who were straight, but they didn't like what I had to say about sexuality. Then I've had people of same-sex attraction who come to the congregation because of what I say about sexuality. I had a, Again, I live in a state where same-sex marriage has been legal for a long time. Well, long, five years. So I had uh, um, two women married with kids come to the congregation they come up to me after church one day and they say, we want you to baptize our kids. And I say, that's great. And I get together with them later and I sit down with them and I said, you know, I just want you to know I wrote this book about sexuality and, you know, this is what I wrote. And they said, oh yeah, we read that. And I said, I want you to know that if you come here to church, we want you to be here, but if you're in same-sex marriage the way things work right now is you can't join. Oh, that's okay. We don't want to join. I want you to know that if you come here and your child's here, that they're going to learn that God's plan for parenthood is a man and a, a, man and a woman, husband and wife. Oh, yeah, we want that for our child. So I'm sitting there saying, what? <laughs> you know, I'm saying, what? And I, you know, I, but then I, we begin to have this conversation. And both of the women had been in horribly abusive marriages to men. They don't ever want to be with a man the rest of their life. But they haven't lost that dream for their kid. And I was saying, you know, the world is not, is nuanced. It's, it's not black and white in this sense. Don't pretend you know somebody. Get to know them. Love them. Are we uh, good on questions? All right. One of the things we want to be able to do as you guys text in the questions is, if there's something that you want to answer, we want to get all of you mm-hmm. that you don't want recorded. Just say, I don't want this recorded, and we okay. want recorded. And then um, we'll come back towards the end and wrap it up. But Should a Christian attend a same-sex marriage ceremony? Um, I'm just going to, this is a journey question for me. Rachel's cousin was in a same-sex marriage in Massachusetts. And uh, we weren't invited to the wedding. But the question we did ask ourselves is, would we have gone? Probably not. It's the reason I'm struggling is Chris and Jan are great people. And Rachel and I want to love them and want to have a relationship with them. And a whole bunch of people, Christians, cut themselves off from them. And we've tried to be intentional about inviting them to dinner and things like that. 
And I'm guessing Chris and Jan did us a favor by not inviting us, in a way. I mean, I, I would have struggled with going because I don't believe in it, the, the ceremony. But I wouldn't cut myself off from their fellowship. So I probably wouldn't. I, pro, I, I have not gone. I don't believe I'd go. But I would, but I would not want to cut off my relationship with them. So that's my answer, whether it's a good one or not. Text more questions. I have a Christian family member who struggles with same-sex attraction as in a heterosexual marriage. Any suggestions? See, this is... You're, it's, you're, we're raising a question of what is our core identity? So... We live in a world in which a lot of people define themselves by their sexual identity. And when I have a, when I have a student, more often than parishioner, when I have a student will come in and say, I have, I'm a gay or lesbian or, or transgendered or bisexual. And I say to them, you know, I know that identity, sexual identity is way you understand yourself, but I want you to know that's not how I understand you. I believe that you are a child of God, made the image of God, loved by God. And so I don't believe that your core identity is sexual or sexual attraction. I believe your core identity is being made in the image of God. And I think we're going to have to agree to disagree about that. And if you don't, it, you know, I understand but what I want you to know is that what it means for me to be a Christian is I don't have to tolerate you, but I have to love you. And what love means is that I have to, I have to be willing to die for you, whether I like you or not. And so I want you to know that in, as we get to know each other, we may not agree about some fundamental issues between us, but I want you to know that if you don't feel the love, you call me on it. Now, I've prefaced my answer to say this because... What's the truest thing that you can say about a person? It is true that there's people with same-sex attraction in, in, in heterosexual marriage. And I guess the thing is, when you look at them, when we look at, are you seeing them as gay or lesbian? Or are you seeing them as children of God? And the reason I want to emphasize this is because we live in a culture that says sexual identity is fundamental identity, period. And I, I'll tell you, we've all, we've met, this world is complicated. We've met lots of different people in lots of different walks. I have met an awful lot of gay men in their 50s who've told me that they wish they'd gotten married to a woman. Now, the world says, well, that's a denial of who you are, and that's a denial of this and that, or it's not being true to your spouse, etc. But being 50 and looking back, they wish they'd had children, and they wish they'd been in a family, and they wish they'd been married. And then when it came right down to it, the sexual attraction issue was not as important as being part of a marriage. So, in the, I mean, I think a lot of people in the world will say, well, they're not being true to themselves and they should 
not be there. And I'm saying, I don't... First of all, I, I wouldn't say that. And second of all, I'm in a heterosexual marriage and I suffer from opposite of sex attraction. But just because I have it doesn't mean I have to act on it. And just because they have it doesn't mean they want to act on it. And what may be most valuable to them, and I don't know them, but what must be, might be most valuable to them is their, part, their spouse. And you may not have sexual attraction for your spouse, but you can love them well. And I, the, the social science is simply arranged marriages have a higher rate of success than non-arranged marriages. And we live in a world with a very romantic view of the, of the world. We live in a world in which we're told that being in a sexually a relationship is, with your spouse really matters. But can you think of anybody that's been in a sexual relationship for seven years and after seven years the sexuality is what holds their relationship together? I've never met anybody that could say yes. Never. So we live in a world that says the best marriages are the one in which there's sexual attraction, the best marriages are the one in which sexuality is kind of this glue, but the truth is it's not true. So you come up with that question like, you, like that, which is a really important question, and it's kind of like saying, well, if you're not sexually attracted to your spouse or there's, it's not smoldering after eight years. And I'm saying, no, I've, I think I think we're bringing in more stuff from the world than we need to. <laughs> you may think your pastor's crazy for praising me. Let's go to the next question. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, that's a good question. Here's, I mean, here's the point. Here's the question. Let's say that you are somebody that the person that you love the most in the world is your gender. I don't think it's wrong to be together. What I'm asking the question is: Do you, do you all do you have to be sexual to be deeply connected? And I, I'll tell you, I don't. There is, if there's not a deeper connection than sexuality, then we got problems. Because if it's true that there's no relationships that last more than seven years for which sexuality is the clue, the truth of the matter is, is that it, we tend to think of intimacy as a sexual category. Deep intimacy goes so much deeper than sexuality. Who do you know that just wants to be related to sexually? Well, there's... There's a few of us. But, and I'm joking a little bit, but the point is, and I only say that because I tell, again, this sounds sexist, and I'm leaving town, so that's fine. But I just tell women, you just can't underestimate the shallowness that men can have when it comes to sexuality. But, again, that's, don't listen to me. But, there is so much more. So, if there's two people of the same gender that care for each other and love for each other, I have no problem with them being... I want them to be together. I don't have any problem with that. 
Uh, the question I ask is, do you need to sexualize it? My answer is no. I don't believe so. I don't believe you need to be, it needs to be sexual. Now, you could say, can they have their own idea of happiness? Yeah. And, the, I mean, it, I don't have any power. I, I have no power to change any law in this land. And I'm certainly not going to change Arizona. What I'm saying is, I am not going to tell them that being sexual is going to promote their happiness. If they believe it's going to promote their happiness, they're probably going to be in a sexual relationship. I don't think it's going to be helpful. So I'm just not going to say, I think that's a great idea. I don't think it'll be helpful. Okay, next question. Can you say the question out loud so we can get on the recording? Yes. I'm always looking at men and wanting to be in a relationship. So many of my friends are engaged in marriage. How can I find comfort in knowing? Um, I'm thinking there's something missing. Um, I mean, one level... We live, there's a lot of loneliness in our world. Um, and it's, and I meet a lot of, there's a lot of loneliness in our world. And I'm, I'm not, I haven't been single for a long time, but I'm, yeah, I'm not, I can, we can all understand that if what, if you want to be in a relationship, a marriage relationship, and you're not, that's hard. Um, but wouldn't it be helpful if even if we yearned to be in a marriage, we felt like we were loved well? We weren't just loved well as kind of tokens. And we weren't loved kind of as a way station to marry. But we are loved well. How many people rush into marriage because they're so lonely or so insecure? How many people feel like if they're not married, they won't be loved? That's not a foundation for a great marriage. And I think that one of the greatest gifts we can give is that if people who aren't married can feel loved, I think that's going to help create better choices if they decide to get married or not. And that's going to be a much better world for all of us. And so it's kind of like it's... it's it, we, will, we will all have yearnings that we can't... that we, we don't have the power to fulfill. But it sure would help if we were loved well now. And I guess that's... I think there's a lot of people yearning, crying out for love, married and not. How should we look upon the gay community in today's society, which sort of idolizes the gay lifestyle? 
Well, there, there is a gay community, but it's more complicated and nuanced than what we think it is. And I think, so the one answer to the question is don't monolithically view everybody the same. There's certainly within the gay community, and this is different than, you know, there's lots of different sexualities, and so gay is less different than lesbian. What we find is that um, lesbian relationships tend to be more monogamous. Gay relations tend to be less monogamous. So there's difference if you looked at the sociological studies between various communities. If we were talking about gay meaning the male community, there's a, there's a, in one level, there's kind of a peer pressure in that community to toe the public line. But if you begin to talk to people, you'll realize that there's lots of different, there's no monolithic gay way of thinking. And there's kind of like there is in almost any community, there's kind of an idolized view of what the human body looks like and what we are to be. And a few people live up to it and a lot of people feel inadequate. And part of the reason that there's such a strong gay community is because there's been such intense persecution over the years. And if people only can find love from people who are like-minded and they all feel persecuted, part of the reason we have a gay community is because we've created it. Um, And I guess the question is, once the gay community gets same-sex marriage, is it going to get what it's been looking for? And I don't think it will. And hopefully people won't be saying, I told you so. People will be saying, there's been a whole bunch of things. I didn't think I, it didn't give me what I expected either. Let's walk together. Spoke a lot about the blessing that comes with being single. So why does God tell Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply? Why does he start the beginning of all human creation with an encouragement to have sex? Um... The question is, I mean, they're all, the question's good, and the question, here's, here's, what I'm, here's my question about the question. No, no, no. We look at the passage. There's no question Adam and Eve are told to be fruitful and multiply, and there's no question that they have sex. And is ultimately, is that, a, is that a procreative act? Is that something that's necessary? I mean, is that something that's a necessary part of their relationship? Is that something that is kind of at the heart of it? See, Part of it is that if I said blessing comes with being single, what I want to say is I hate the word single. 
And what I mean by that is it just... I think the truth about us all is that we're all part of family. And the truth about us all is that we're all part of the church. We're all supposed to be part of community. We're not made to be singular. And the question I guess we have to ask ourselves is, is the scriptural teaching from Adam and Eve saying we need to be married? And I think the procre- I think that this commandment is a command that, that's given to create the family. It's not a commandment that said everybody's got to be married. Because if everybody has to be married to be fulfilled, then the world is a pretty cruel place. And we often, I think we look at the Old Testament and we say, well, everybody's supposed to be married. And I think, no, we're all part of family. We're not, we don't know, we're not all going to get married. We're all going to be connected to family for until the day that we die. There's always going to be somebody there for us. Same in the New Testament. And that the biggest challenge we faced is that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. It was the only thing about creation that was negative. God said everything was good except for the fact that Adam was alone. So is the creation of Eve saying you need to have be married? Or is the creation of Eve saying we need others? Or some variation. And I think the creation of Eve means we need others. I think the creation of Eve means that we need other people to be find fulfillment. We need other people and we need God. And that some of us will be married, but not all of us. Some of us, our spouses will die or leave or whatever. But that we still have relational, we're not alone. And that's what's haunting to me about that word single. I've been struggling with it for years. It just implies that you're alone. And to me, that's exactly what the church and exactly what God wanted to guard against. We don't have to be alone. Can you give us some specific examples of what it means to love well? In other words, if love isn't only about sexual intimacy, what is it about? You have what I think is called community groups or small groups. I don't think it's advisable for anybody to begin to bear their soul unless you can trust the people you're with. So, but I think part of what it means to love well, and we tend to use this as sexual language, but I don't think it's supposed to be just sexual language. We all want to be loved and we all want to be known. All of us. Part of what it is to be loved is for somebody else to know us and still love us. All of us, there's, we may have varying degrees, but all of us struggle with a certain amount of insecurity. All of us. And so I think the language of love is also the language of knowing. And so I think what it loves, what it means to love well is that when you're engaged in a relationship in which you're gradually getting to know another person, part of that is a sensitivity and a maturity and a commitment that as you get to know somebody else, 
you're going to discover something about them that's unlovely. You're going to discover something about them that's offensive. And when you get to know them, if you don't have the maturity ahead of time to say, I'm not going to let their unloveliness make me break off the relationship. I'll get to know them and I find out this secret thing and now I'm going to distance myself. I think what it means to love well in one sense is to know well. And to know well, to know, be able to be somebody that can know well is, is somebody where you can gradually begin to open yourself, you can gradually begin to become vulnerable and vice versa, and the other person won't become your shame. The other person, in one sense, can help become the antidote for that. So I think loving well is knowing well. And that's when I try to say, we tend to think that sexuality goes to this deepest place, but I think it just, it goes so much deeper. And I think, I know we have sexual attraction and I know we have sexual drive, but I think we all want to be known and loved and we all want somebody to get to know us and love us. And I don't think marriage is the only place where that has to happen. Is there a danger in saying that marriage is only for procreation? No, I mean, I think marriage is for mutual comfort. I think marriage is... Marriage is about the creation of family, whether there's kids or not. Marriage connects families. We tend to view marriage today as two people with their soulmates and the rest of the world doesn't matter. But I think, no, I think marriage connects families, aunts and uncles, etc. I think marriage is a, a really important part of the social fabric. It's not the only thing that matters, but it matters. I mean, we're having this discussion tonight about same-sex marriage, but the irony is we, the part of the reason we have a same-sex marriage is because we have a society that is losing faith in marriage. So where I live, it's not like we want same-sex marriage. I would say that it's more like life kind of stinks. I'm not very happy. And if somebody else has figured out a way to be happy, great. I think it's more of a statement of relational despair in some fashion. And so this irony is we're getting same-sex marriage. At the same time, a majority of Americans will likely never be married. 45% of our kids are born outside of marriage. The smallest number of people in their 20s are married presently than ever been in American history. Is it the case that people are delaying marriage? Or is it the case that people are losing faith in marriage? In the Northeast, where I come from, I think there's a losing of faith in marriage. In the 24 hours I've been here, I've heard more faith in marriage from many of you all than I have in the Northeast. And I'm encouraged by what you say to me. So... Now, marriage matters and family matters. 
We can't afford a world without marriage. And you may say, that's, what do you mean? It costs between four and eight times more money for a child to be born outside of a marriage than in a marriage for our society. We already have a $16 trillion federal debt. Our consumer debt is $16 trillion. We're functionally bankrupt. You can see why nobody invites me to their... <laughs> anywhere. And... And... The reason why it costs more money for outside of a marriage than in a marriage is, to begin with, a child born outside of a marriage is more... You think have to think about the cost of WIC food stamps that often it goes along in the criminal justice system. But the thing that makes it between four and eight is since 45% of our kids are born outside of marriage, those born inside of marriage are often in families of marriages, the children of divorce. You've got six, between 60 and 70% of our kids are not connected, so living with their biological parents. And what ends up happening is if you're not living with your biological parents, it kind of begins to, the relationship erodes. And it not only erodes the biological parents, it dramatically erodes the grandparent relationships. And the problem is, is that right now, people my age are taking care of their parents at a significant sacrifice. I'm, yes, I'm a little bitter about it. But we're the best bargain the government has. Because what we're seeing is, is that more and more people that are growing older, there's less children that are connected to take care of them. And when the government has to pay for it, we can't afford it. And so what I'm saying is, is that leaving aside the moral question, the world is designed with a certain physics to it. We can't afford a world without marriage and family. Literally. Our country can't afford it. And so, whatever the question was, it's marriage. No, marriage matters. And I, I have no problem. I mean, as a pastor, I want everybody in my church to take a marriage, the marriage, alpha marriage course. Why? Because it's good to know about marriage, whether you're married or not. I want you to take the alpha parenting course. Why? Because it's good for you to know about parenting, whether you're a parent or not. And because when we have our baptisms, or adult baptism, whatever, when we have our children dedication, or baptisms, in the Northeast we have baptisms, we as a congregation say we're going to take care of these kids together, whether we're married or not, whether we're their parents or not. So I want to support marriage, and I want to support family, I want to support parenting. I'm just also wanting to put it in its place. Following is the last question. Why would God create people to have same-sex attractions but can act on how they feel and have to change themselves according to what is right? Okay. That word ethics means what are the rules by which we are going to live by? What are the what are, the mom what are the things that are going to cause us not to do what pleases us? In other words, 
The world can't work if everybody does what they please. The world can't work if everybody does what they want. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what are the rules by which we're going to ask people to deny what they naturally want to do? So, it's yes, it's true that there's people with same-sex attractions, and I'm saying that we shouldn't act on it, meaning sexually. I don't have any problem with you acting on it, meaning get to know somebody and to love someone else well. But it's also, the question, to be fair, is also broader, which is to say, why do any of us have attractions and we're not, we don't get to act on them? So, I don't want to be dismissive or insensitive to the fact that there's, peop there's people that have same-sex attractions and I don't have them. And that I'm saying, and I think the scripture says, they have same-sex attraction. It's not wrong to have the attraction. It's not wrong to love somebody else of the same gender. Don't sexualize it. And what I'm saying is, is that people with same-sex attractions aren't supposed to act on it sexually. They do have to... They, do, are, they are called, in my estimation, to alter their behavior, and all of the, the rest of us are called to alter our behavior in different ways. And I guess here's the question, and I know you're looking at me asking probably many questions, but I, I acknowledge the fact it's very, it would be very hard to have same-sex attraction and not act on it in the way that you want to. And I, I am, want to say, it's hard for all of us to not act on things that we feel very strongly. And all of us are called to deny certain aspects of ourselves. It's hard. And that's why we need to be loved. And no, about a, no amount of love is going to change somebody's attractions. It's not, but it's going to... But I think it's, it does change us. So let me pray to close. Like our God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. They thank you for this time together. There's been many words that have been uttered, many thoughts that are had, and Lord, we want to give these things to you. Lord, we acknowledge that we are small and you are large. We acknowledge that there's lots of things we don't understand. We acknowledge the prejudices that we have within. And God, it's so hard to be in this world and not of it. I pray for this congregation. I ask God that you would help them to love well. I pray that you would dwell richly here. I pray that this community would come to know that you are loved by the way that they love each other. And I pray, God, that your rich blessing would dwell on this place. And God, we give to you tonight a whole bunch of questions and concerns and things we're frustrated about and all sorts of things. And God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us
deeply. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.